Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, welcome. Uh, if you want to take a seat, we'll go ahead and get started. We are in Matthew chapter 11 today. And we are going to go ahead and begin at verse 16. And we're going to read through verse 30. So if you have your Bibles with you, Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 16. And Jesus said, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Last week when we began looking at Matthew chapter 11, one of the things that we pointed out was that Jesus' ministry began with a great deal of enthusiasm. There was a great deal of excitement associated with the things that Jesus was doing, with the things that Jesus was teaching. And we said huge crowds thronged wherever Jesus went. At one point, crowds in excess of 5,000 people were following Jesus. Uh, that's hugely successful, especially for people in our day and age where we oftentimes judge success on the basis of numbers. And so we would have said that Jesus' ministry at the beginning was very successful, at least from a worldly point of view. But we said that as time went by, that initial ardor began to cool, and people began to fall away. Uh, they became less enthusiastic about Jesus, and uh, eventually some of the people became outright hostile to him. 
Now we asked the question, why was that? What was it that, that changed people's attitude toward Jesus? And we said there could have been any number of things. The Gospels talk about any number of factors. But certainly one of the issues, at least as far as Matthew is concerned, is Jesus' claim to be the king. That's, that's a thread that runs through this Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus is claiming to be a king. That's how the Gospel begins, with John the Baptist appearing in the Judean wilderness, telling people to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus himself, shortly thereafter, when he begins his public ministry, following his baptism in the Jordan River, preaches the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was Jesus' great claim, that he had come to be the king. He was the king of the Jews, yes, but not just the king of the Jews. He had come to be the king of the world. And many people reacted in various ways to that great claim. And we are going to take a look at three of them. We started last week with the reaction of John the Baptist to the claim that Jesus was the king. We said, much to our surprise, when John was placed in prison at a place called Machaerus Fortress, down in the Judean wilderness, that when he heard that Jesus was out preaching and teaching and healing people, he sent a message. He sent messengers to Jesus with the question, are you the one or should we wait for another? And we said that's rather shocking because, of course, it was John the Baptist who initially had designated Jesus as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. John was the forerunner, and the last person we would expect to be filled with a sense of doubt was John the Baptist. Now, some earlier commentators suggest to us that when John asked the question, are you the one or should we wait for another, he really wasn't asking for his own benefit, he was asking for the benefit of his disciples. In other words, John really didn't have any doubts but his disciples had doubts, and so he simply asked the question for their benefit so that Jesus could answer them. Well, that may be persuasive to some people. It's not particularly persuasive to me. Um, to begin with, I think it flows very nicely with what we have here in chapters 11 and 12 to suggest that John really did go through a period of doubt. Now, as I pointed out last week, doubt is... I'm not quite sure what just happened there. But, um, sorry about that with the screen. Technology is what it is. Maybe that'll get us going. Um, here we go. Um, doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Um, doubt, in the words of one Christian writer, Os Guinness, is being between two minds. It means that on the one hand, you're inclined to believe something, but there is another part of you that is inclined not to believe it. And that's not the same thing as willful unbelief. In fact, doubt is part and parcel of what it means to be a human. We all go through periods of doubt and struggle. And we ask the question, well, then why did John the Baptist go through a period of doubt? What was it that had precipitated this, this crisis in his life, as it were? Well, we said there were any number of factors. One of the factors was that John had been arrested and he was locked away. And John had been a very active individual. He was a very robust person. He was out there preaching the word and all of a sudden he finds himself completely sidelined. And it's been my experience that when people are very active individuals and for whatever reason they find themselves sidelined, either professionally or physically due to some illness, it can be a very frustrating thing. And I suspect that that's what John was going through. But not just that, John must have been spiritually and emotionally drained. 
I mean, he had been out there contending for the gospel. He had been out there opposing the leadership, the scribes and the Pharisees. When they came out from Jerusalem, he called them a brood of vipers. He had been contending against King Herod and, and Herod's relationship with his brother's wife. And, and that's dangerous work, folks. And one of the things that you quickly understand is that when people are in stressful situations, that takes a toll. Anybody that's ever been in combat can tell you. It's one of the reasons why you have to pull troops out of the front line sometimes and give them rest before you send them back in. Otherwise, the pressure is so great that they crack. And John must have been emotionally, physically, spiritually drained. So that's one reason why he may have had doubt. But I said that still, I don't think that's getting at the real heart of the matter. The real heart of the matter, I think, for John the Baptist, and the real reason why he was having questions about Jesus' identity, wondering, did I perhaps get it wrong when I designated him as the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world, is because Jesus wasn't living up to John's expectations. Now, when I say living up to John's expectations, you need to understand me here. I am not suggesting that John had his own ideas as to what the Messiah should be doing and Jesus wasn't living up to John's ideas of what that should be. John did not have an agenda for the Messiah. But as John read the scriptures, he understood that when the Messiah came, there was going to be justice in the world. I mean, the Old Testament spoke of that, that when the Messiah came, he was going to bring justice. That's why John said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. For I tell you the truth, there is one coming after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You need to repent. Why? Because his winnowing fork is in his hand. To clear the threshing floor. He is coming to bring judgment. This broken and fallen world is going to be set right. And therefore, you need to repent. And the problem for John is he had heard that Jesus was out there preaching and teaching. He'd been out there preaching and teaching. It got him landed in prison. Jesus is out there preaching and teaching, and Jesus is free. And thousands of people are following after him, and he's wondering to himself, where's the justice? And so he sends these messengers off to Jesus. And Jesus says, what does John want? He wants evidence that I'm the Messiah. You go back and tell him. The blind receive their sight, the lame leap for joy, the dead are raised. Blessed is the one who is not offended on account of me. See, one of the things that the Messiah was supposed to do when he came was to bring restoration. And Jesus was saying, that is exactly what I'm doing. The proof is in my works. Now what is interesting is that the Messiah was supposed to do those things, but the same passage from Isaiah that spoke of the Messiah doing all of those things also spoke of justice. And so John is probably still wondering, where is the justice? It was Jesus' way of saying, justice will come. There will be a day of vengeance, the day of the Lord. There will be a day of judgment, but now is the day of grace. It was simply Jesus' way of saying, that's coming. The Messiah will bring that. But before that comes, there is an opportunity for people to be saved. It is the day of grace, and we're still living in that day of grace until the Lord returns in glory, and we ought to be thankful for it. So that was the case with John the Baptist. And even though he was filled with doubt, what I think is so marvelous is Jesus' response to him is a very generous and tender response. He does not upbraid John for his doubt. He provides him with the evidence that he needs 
in order to have that doubt go away, in order to have his faith strengthened. And then he turns around and he actually turns to the people and he praises John as the greatest of all the men born of women. So that's John's reaction to Jesus. He he is filled with a, a degree of doubt. And we see Jesus' response to that doubt. It is a generous, compassionate, tender response. But doubt, represented by John the Baptist, was not the only response that many people had to Jesus' claim to be the king. Another response that existed at this same time was unbelief. And as I said, doubt and unbelief are not the same thing. Unbelief is a willful refusal to believe. And that's what we see in the verses that we have before us today. That's Jesus was talking about when he said, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. John really wanted to understand. The problem with the people is that they had been provided with ample evidence of the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. He had performed all kinds of works in their presence And still, they what? They refused to believe. They weren't filled with doubt. They were simply unimpressed. Now that is a whole different category. That is a whole different kind of response. Jesus says they are like spoiled children. The message came to them through John, and they didn't like what John had to say. The message came to them through Jesus, and they didn't particularly like what Jesus had to say. And he said they came in two different ways. John came calling for repentance, and people didn't listen. Jesus came speaking of grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and what? The people didn't listen. He said, what do you do with a generation like that? You know, if you think about it, nothing has changed. In 2,000 years, there is a sense in which very little has changed. One of the things that I find so fascinating about the Lord and His disciples and about the Apostle Paul and Peter and those who would preach during the period of the book of Acts is that God provides the world with all different kinds of messengers. You know, Peter and Paul were not like each other, but they proclaimed a similar message. If you think about Peter and James and John and Andrew and Bartholomew and those 12 disciples, they were all different. They were of a different temperament, weren't they? And yet they came proclaiming the message and still there were many people who rejected him. They didn't care who came. And what you discover is that that is the reaction of many people today. There are some people who are genuinely filled with doubt and all they need is evidence in order to believe Help me to understand, but there are other people who no matter how much evidence you give them, no matter how much proof you provide, still they will not receive the message. Not because they are not persuaded in their minds, but because their hearts are hardened to the message of the gospel. Now that's sad, but Jesus said that is one of the reactions that people sometimes have to him. As I said, it's no different today. God has many messengers There are some preachers and some teachers who are powerful. They can move you to tears. 
by their sheer oratory. There are others who are outgoing and talkative. There are some that are intellectual. They are great apologists. They have the ability to unpack the great mysteries of the faith in such a way that you feel as though it's a compelling argument. There are some who are retiring and thoughtful. They're the quiet types. They're not exactly like the powerful speakers, but they're retiring and they have something deep to say, something deep to offer. Some are gentle, some are assertive. But what I have discovered, and perhaps you've experienced this as well, is that it doesn't matter which one of those people comes and preaches. There are some people that are not going to accept the message no matter who they are. You get a powerful preacher in the pulpit and some people will say, well, he's loud. You know, I don't like that. He came on too strong. Or you get somebody up there who is intellectual and they say, well, it was just, it was, it was over everybody's head. I couldn't understand a word that he said. But if you get somebody who's not too intellectual, well, then they say, well, it was too basic. You know, we, we, need, we needed something more, somebody to provide us with a little more meat. You get some who are gentle, some who are retiring, some who are thoughtful. It doesn't make a difference. And that just goes to show us that the problem, my friends, is not really, and this was the case with the crowds in Jesus' day, the problem is not really with the messenger or the message. The problem is with who? It's with the hearer. It's with the hearer. And that's what Jesus was saying. He said, look, John the Baptist came. You want something bold? You want somebody assertive? You want somebody who's going to be strong and give it to you straight? Well, there's John the Baptist. You didn't like that. So I came gentle, speaking of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And you didn't like that either. You're like little children who don't want to play a game no matter what the game is. You're just dissatisfied. And that was the reaction of the crowds in Jesus' day. And there are a number of things that follow from this. Uh, to begin with, I said that doubt and unbelief are not the same thing. We have two examples in the scriptures that help to illustrate this point. If you will, turn to Mark chapter 9, and you'll get an example of doubt in the scriptures. So if you are wondering if you're struggling with doubt or unbelief, here's a way to tell. In Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 14, we have a story of Jesus healing a boy who is possessed of a demon. And this is what they reread. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone in the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. 
All things are possible for those who believe. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now there's a case where the man made a choice to what? Believe in Jesus. And as you've heard me talk about before, faith is not the same thing as credulity, my friends. Faith is not hope against hope. If you were in church on Sunday, you heard me talk about faith. What is faith? Faith is trust. This man already had a degree of trust. That's why he brought his son to Jesus' disciples. But as I pointed out on Sunday, the problem was not that he lacked faith. The problem is that he had faith placed in the wrong place. He placed his faith in the disciples. And what he really needed to do was place his faith in Jesus. And yet, as a human being, he was still struggling. What if I'm disappointed? If you can, help my son. If I can, Jesus says. It's going to take a little more than that, my friend. All right, I believe. I trust you. But he's honest, isn't he? I believe. Help my unbelief. That's doubt, my friends. That's not willful disobedience. How many of you have ever been there? How many of you have ever prayed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? The Lord understands that. He understands that. But with doubt, you persevere anyway. Doubt is never the stopping point. It is simply the starting point for going deeper so that we can dispel the doubt. Now that's doubt. But if you go to Luke chapter 11, verse 14 you're going to get a different picture. It's not doubt. This is something of an entirely different order. So Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 14. It's a similar situation because Jesus is still engaged in casting out demons. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept saying from, a, from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes his armor in which he was trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, here's a case where Jesus has just performed a great miracle, similar to the one that I just described. But in this case, the people are in awe, and the question arises, how does he get this power? And the Jewish religious leader's response is, yes, they don't deny the fact that he performed a miracle. 
But they credit the miracle to what? To the devil. Oh, yes, he's able to do this, but he's able to do this how? By the power of Satan. Now, you have to ask yourself, what could have possibly persuaded them that Jesus was not working for the dark side? Was there anything that Jesus could have done that would have persuaded them otherwise? Not a thing. They had already made up their minds against Jesus. Now, that is very different from what that father was dealing with. He was dealing with doubt. I believe, help my unbelief. This is a willful refusal to believe. And when it comes to the Pharisees, it is a particularly, particularly serious and damning problem, as we will see. One of the things I want you to understand about the Christian faith, and this is very important, is that we are not expected to believe without evidence. The Christian faith is an historical faith. We either believe that these things actually happened, that Jesus actually went to the cross and died physically, was laid in the tomb, and bodily, physically raised from the dead, or as the Apostle Paul says, we are of all men most to be pitied. So what I want you to understand is that Christianity is an intellectually satisfying endeavor. And furthermore, Christianity does provide us with evidence. In a courtroom, I know we've got some lawyers out there today, what is the burden of proof? It's evidence what? Beyond a reasonable doubt. Isn't that what's required? Actually, nobody gets proof in a courtroom necessarily. That, that's not what's required. What is required is evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And the question is, did Jesus provide people during the course of his life and ministry with evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, evidence in order to believe? You see, if you have proof, absolute proof, you don't need faith. I'm going to tell you there's nothing in life, nothing of value or significance in your life or my life that doesn't require faith. Those of you who are married, how do you know that your spouse loves you? For all you know, they're faking it. Now, they may be faking it pretty well, but you take it on faith, don't you? How do you know that, that, that your children love you? you? You take it on the basis of faith, don't you? Many of you came in this morning, and you sat down in that chair. How many of you tried it out before you sat down in it? You, you trusted that it was going to hold you up, didn't you? Now, that faith is based upon what? Evidence. There's, if, if somebody had sat down in one of those chairs and it had collapsed beneath you, would you have been surprised? Absolutely. Is it possible that a chair, when you sit down in it, could collapse? Absolutely. Why did you sit down without even trying the chair out then? Because past performance is a good indicator of what? Future performance. Based upon past evidence, you had faith in the chair. Well, that is exactly what Jesus provided for the crowds. That's exactly what he provided for John the Baptist. He provided evidence. It was evidence enough for John to believe, but for the crowds, it wasn't that evidence wasn't provided, my friends. It was that in spite of the evidence, they still refused to believe. I've sometimes said that Thomas is one of my favorite disciples. We call him Doubting Thomas. I think that that's probably... A, uh, a wrong way to describe Thomas. 
Actually, Thomas was one of the most courageous of the disciples. When Jesus actually set his face toward Jerusalem and said, I'm going to go there, and the other disciples said, oh, no, you can't go to Jerusalem. If you go there, you're going to die. It was Thomas who said, well, if he's got to go there and die, let us go and die with him. Nobody remembers courageous Thomas. The only thing we remember is what? Oh, doubting Thomas. Because in the wake of the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to his disciples and Thomas was absent, we're never told where he was. I don't know, maybe he was at the Piggly Wiggly or something like that. He'd gone out to, to collect supplies. But wherever he was, when he comes back, the other disciples say, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas's reaction is what? I don't believe it. I'm not buying it. Unless I can take my hand and put it in his side, unless I can take my finger and put it in the nail prints, I will not believe. And you know what happened a week later? Jesus appeared to Thomas and the others. And he said, peace be with you. And then he said, Thomas, come here. And I imagine, you know, Thomas at that point, I, I, you, have to, you have to kind of use your imagination. What do you think Thomas did at that point? I said, Thomas, I think Thomas said, okay, I got it. I'm all right. You go ahead. <laughs> it's fine. I believe now. And the Lord said no. And, and there's a great painting. I think it's by Caravaggio, but I'm not sure who it was. But it shows Jesus and doubting Thomas, and Jesus has Thomas's hand in his, and he's pulling Thomas's finger into his side. In other words, Thomas, you wanted the proof. I'm going to provide you with the evidence that you need. And Thomas is probably, no, I, I got it. No. No, you wanted it. You're going to get it. Now, the reason Jesus was upset with Thomas was not that Thomas required evidence in order to believe. The problem was that over the course of the previous three years, Jesus had provided ample evidence for Thomas to believe. I mean, Thomas was there when Jesus calmed the waves on the Sea of Galilee. He was there when Jesus walked on the water. He was there at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee when Jesus turned the water into wine. He had seen demons cast out, lepers cleansed, the eyes of the blind open. He had seen people raised from the dead, the widow of Nain's son, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus. And all over the course of those three years, Jesus, and in addition to these miracles, this evidence, he had said, and I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day I will rise again. And when it happened, Thomas and the others, what? Didn't believe. Now, how much more evidence can Jesus possibly provide? That was the problem, you see. It's not that God doesn't want to give us evidence. It's the problem is that oftentimes, even when the evidence is provided, we don't want to believe. And perhaps one of the reasons we don't want to believe is because we know what that means if we do. If Jesus really is the king, then that means he has to sit on the throne of our hearts, and that's what many of the people in that day did not want. How's the old poem Invictus go? I shall be the master of my own fate, the captain of my own destiny. That's what the people wanted. And that's why Jesus speaks in the following verses in such a fierce way against the crowds. As I said, his response to John the Baptist and John the Baptist's doubt was a gentle response. But Jesus' response to the unbelief of the crowds is anything but gentle. In fact, it's quite stern. Here's what he says. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? I tell you, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. If you read through, once again, just through the first ten chapters of Matthew, Matthew has already recorded a whole series of miracles that Jesus had performed, the bulk of them having taken place in these cities, in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. What were those miracles? Well, in Matthew chapter 8, we have the healing of the centurion's servant. Matthew chapter 8, the following verses, we have the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. We have the casting out of demons in Matthew chapter 9. The healing of a paralytic in chapter 9. We have the raising of a dead girl in chapter 9. We have the restoring of sight to two blind men in chapter 9. And we have the exorcism of a mute demoniac. In other words, Jesus had provided, leading up to these events, all of the evidence that was required in order for people to recognize that he truly was who he claimed to be, the king. The king who had authority, authority over sickness, authority over death, authority over demons. But what? The people still, we're told, refused to believe. What happens to people who refuse to believe? Well, that's what they are. They're hard-hearted. But the question is, what happens to people who refuse to believe? We have this picture, don't we, of Jesus meek and mild, Jesus merciful, Jesus is going to overlook, Jesus who grades on the curve. But what does Jesus say to those people who refuse to believe? He says, woe to you. That is to say, woe and misery and destruction is coming upon you. What Jesus talks about in these verses, verses 20 through 24, is judgment. Judgment is coming upon the world. Now, I've said to you before, judgment is not always a bad thing. If, if, if judge rules, if you're accused of something and the judge rules in your favor, that's not condemnation, that's what? Vindication. But if you are found guilty, then it is a terrible thing. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. He's saying judgment is coming. And if you refuse to believe that, judgment will be against you. I want to say five things about judgment. Now, I know nobody wants to hear about judgment, especially during the lunch hour. And it just turns your stomach. I don't want to hear anything about judgment. You know, I, you hear this all the time. You know, the preacher's preaching at me. You know, it's kind of our job, but nevertheless, you know, people say, I don't, be, I, don't, I don't go to church to hear about judgment and hell and damnation and all that sort of thing. I go to church to be encouraged and uplifted and inspired. Give me something good and uplifting and encouraging. I don't want to hear about death and judgment and hell and being called to account. Now, I don't want to see a show of hands, but how many of you probably feel in your heart that's exactly right? 
Here's the problem. If that's the attitude, what you're really saying is, I do not want to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Because here it comes. Shocker. Spoiler alert. Jesus talked more about judgment and hell than any other figure in the New Testament. Jesus talked about those things, and he talked about those things because he knew they were real and he knew they were serious. That's what he's saying to these people. Woe to you! So here are five truths that we need to remember about judgment. The first is the most basic. There will be a judgment. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, those of you who've been raised in the church, you profess this every Sunday in the words of the creed, and we believe again that he will come to what? Judge the living and the dead, or the quick and the dead. As I pointed out to you last week, if you're still here this morning, breathing this afternoon, whatever it is, you're among the quick. So he's coming to judge you, and he's coming to judge me. Judgment is real. That's one of the themes that you find throughout the New Testament as well as the Old. It's not just a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament. It's the same God. And judgment is real, and it is coming. Jesus makes that point very clear. Here's something else about judgment. There are degrees of punishment. And that punishment, the severity of that punishment, is going to be based upon the knowledge that you have been given. Now, we don't think about that. We don't, we don't think about there being degrees of punishment at the time of the judgment. But that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, if the mighty works have been done in you, have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for what? For you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, and you know what Sodom and Gomorrah were like, they were terrible places, it will remain to this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than it will for you. So Jesus says there is a day of judgment. And for some people, the judgment is going to be more severe than it will be for others. Third thing that Jesus reveals to us here is that the worst sin, my friends, is unbelief. Now, that's generally not what we think. When you think of notorious, terrible sins, what immediately pops into your mind? Well, murder, or theft, or adultery, the overt, obvious sins. We say, well, that, that person is a notorious sinner if they're engaged in that kind of activity. When we think of the notorious sinners of the past, that's right, we think of people like Adolf Hitler, or we think of Benito Mussolini, or Stalin, or we think of Idi Amin, or we think in a former age of people like Genghis Khan, or Domitian, or Nero. Those, those are the real villains of the past. And don't get me wrong, those people were terrible sinners. But what is interesting about Jesus' pronouncement of woes upon these cities is that there is nothing in the text that indicates that they were engaged in the kinds of things that those notorious sinners that I've just mentioned were engaged in. In other words, the people of Chorazin, the people of Bethsaida, the people of Capernaum were just run-of-the-mill sinners. 
like you and me. They were just regular people. For all we know, from a worldly standard, they were upright, upstanding citizens. They weren't engaged in what we would call overtly notorious sins. What was their problem? What was their greatest sin? That they refused to believe. In Jesus' mind, that is the worst sin of all. That, my friends, if you've ever wondered, is the unforgivable sin. You ever hear about that? The unforgivable sin? Every sin Jesus said will be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. How many of you have ever worried about that? Well, everybody's hand ought to go up. I mean, geez, it's the unforgivable sin. I, you know, I mean, anything else is okay, but unforgivable sin? Have I committed it? Have you ever wondered? Well, those, I'm going to see those who originally raised their hand. Raise your hand high again. Good for you. Now, some of you put your hands up afterward, and that's not fair. I want the original crowd is what I want. And here's why I want the original crowd, because if you've ever wondered if you've committed and worried about committing the unforgivable sin, you haven't. What is the unforgivable sin? The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us, to convict the world of sin and righteousness. That's what the Holy Spirit's work is doing. He is the one who speaks to your heart, to your mind, and to your conscience and convicts you of your sin and of the truth of the gospel. Now, if the Holy Spirit has done that in your life, if you've heard a message preached and you've been convicted in your heart and you know that deep down inside you are not what you were meant to be, you know that you're a sinner and you know that Jesus Christ has provided the way of salvation, if you are convicted in your heart and still you refuse to believe, Jesus is saying, then what hope is there for you? Because what you're saying is, I know the truth, but I don't want to have anything to do with it. See, that was the problem for the Pharisees. Remember in John chapter 3, the story of how Nicodemus came at night. He was a Pharisee. Remember the Sanhedrin, the ruling council? He came to Jesus at night, didn't he? Why did he come under the cover of darkness? Well, he didn't want anybody else to know that he was coming. That was probably the first reason. That's right. But when he comes and Jesus opens the door, the first thing Nicodemus says to him is this. We know that you are a man who has come from God, for no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. Isn't that, what John, isn't that what he says, Nicodemus? Now, here's what's interesting. John has just explained to us that Nicodemus is, number one, a Pharisee, that Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And the first words out of Nicodemus's mouth are, we know. Who's the we? He doesn't say, I know. He says, we know. In other words, the Pharisees know. The Sanhedrin knows. We all know that you are a man who has come from God because no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. In other words, they all knew that he came from God. And yet, who were Jesus' greatest enemies? Who were the ones that plotted his downfall? Who was it that incited the crowd to call for his blood? It was the Pharisees, wasn't it? in spite of the fact that they were convinced in their hearts that he really was from God, still they hated him. See, that is willful unbelief. And my friends, there is no sacrifice for that. Because you've been convinced by the Holy Spirit and still you are saying willfully, I want nothing to do with it. So the worst sin of all is unbelief. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Another thing that Jesus is saying about judgment is that God's judgment and the severity of that judgment will be based upon the knowledge that you have. Notice what he says. He said, if the works that had been done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have repented long ago. If the works that have been done in you, Gomorrah, would have remained to the present day. In other words, he's saying, if I had done the same things in those ancient notorious sinners, they would have repented. Jesus is saying, oh yes, they paid the price for their sin. There are two types of revelation. There is God's revelation in nature. They should have known that there is a God and that there's righteousness and there's going to be a day of judgment. But he said, you have an even greater advantage than they did. You have the advantage of what? Not simply hearing about the Messiah, but seeing him. And so he's saying there is a sense in which you're going to be based upon what you know. To me, this is one of the most frightening prospects. You know, there are some people who will be judged because God has revealed himself in the things that have been made. This is one of the things that Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He said, the wrath of God is being revealed against all of the godlessness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. Because God's, the evidence of God is plainly seen in the things that have been made. This is Paul's way of saying, this is called general revelation, for those of you who want the technical theological term. It's called general revelation. That is to say, God makes himself known in the created order. You cannot look at the world in which we live and how fine-tuned it is for life, and not just life, but for advanced life. You cannot look at it. There's actually more evidence from science today than in any other period in history that there is a designer to the universe. You cannot look at that and say there is no God. But while nature can tell you that there is a God, nature can't tell you what that God's like. Now you can look out over the river at your dock at the end of the day and say, oh, if that beautiful sun is setting, you can say to yourself, oh, God is great. But you know the God of nature is the same God who causes tsunamis, the same God who allowed the destruction that Hurricane Dorian brought to the Bahamas which tells us that general revelation can take you so far, but if you really want to know what God is like, what the character of God is like, you need something beyond general revelation. You need a special revelation, and that is what we have in Jesus Christ. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah had a general revelation. The people of Capernaum and Bethsaida, they had a specific revelation. God himself, the Messiah, the Savior, was there in their midst, and they still refused to believe. I say that makes me tremble for the United States of America. Why? Because, my friends, we have greater access to the gospel than any other people in the history of the world. There are many countries in the world, particularly in communist countries, where people do not have access to the gospel, they do not have access to the scriptures, and they are still sinners and they may be judged by it, but those of us who have been given the advantage of the good news and we still refuse to believe and repent and change our ways, my goodness, it will be more tolerable for them on the day of judgment than for us. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's the last point about judgment. God owes no one salvation. The people of Sodom were wicked and they got what they deserved. If we get mercy, we're getting what we don't deserve. We're getting grace. 
Mercy and grace are not owed to anyone. The very fact that you and I have grown up in a culture with all the privileges that we have and with greater access to the good news of Jesus Christ than at any other period in history, my friends, that is mercy. And the book of Hebrews says, how then shall we escape so great a judgment if we ignore so great a salvation? Now that's pretty dismal, isn't it? But Jesus says that's the way it is. But what's so wonderful about Jesus is that he came not to condemn the world, but to do what? To save it. So yes, he says there is a judgment coming, and those who refuse to believe, they will face a severe trial. But he says, I have come that you may have life. Come not to condemn the world, I've come to save the world. And that's why, having talked about judgment and woe, Jesus then goes on to issue this wonderful, wonderful invitation. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is saying a judgment is coming, but you need not endure it. There is a way of escape, and I have come that you may know that way. He says, come. A couple of things to note about this invitation. First of all, it's an invitation for everyone. You'll notice Jesus doesn't say, if you're a Jew, come to me. He says, come to me, all who travail and are heavy laden. You can be educated, you can be ignorant. You can be wealthy, you can be poor. You can be black, you can be white. You can be American. You can be Russian. doesn't make a difference. Jesus is saying, come to me, all. There is a way of escape. There is a way of deliverance. There is a way of salvation for all who will come. It doesn't get any more inclusive than that. The people say, oh, I want an inclusive gospel. There's no more inclusive gospel than that. That anyone who would come may come. He says, come. In particular, he says, come to me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden. Now, when Jesus talks about travailing and being heavy laden, he's not talking about just hard work. We all know what that's like. There are all times in our lives when we're physically exhausted and physically tired. What he's talking about is coming with the burden of guilt and the burden of sin. How many of you have ever felt guilty in your life? Is that a good feeling? Now, there are two types of guilt. You know, there's good guilt, and that's when we've done something wrong and we're convicted in our hearts. 
Our conscience convicts us and tells us we've done wrong. There is. Now, there's bad guilt, and that's when we haven't done something wrong, but there's always somebody out there packing our bags for the guilt trip. You know, it's a form of manipulation. What Jesus is talking about is that good guilt. When we know we've done something wrong, when we know we failed to measure up, when we knew we flew off the handle, when we knew that we gossiped, when we know that we've caused misery and unhappiness in the lives of others through our own willful desires. And if you've been there, and every single one of us at one point or another has, Jesus is saying, if you're ever weighed down by that, come. This deliverance is for you. Come to me if you're burdened down by your sin, by your guilt, by your shame. He's saying, come to me. And I will do what? I will give you rest. If you've never read the classic Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, let me encourage you to do so. It's a wonderful story. It's about a man, his name is Christian, naturally, and he's on a pilgrimage up to the celestial city. It's a picture of the Christian life. But for the whole first part of the book, Christian, making his way to the celestial city, is weighed down by this enormous burden on his back. Until finally he comes to a hill on which there is a cross. And at the foot of that cross, suddenly the burden is loosened and it falls off and it rolls down a hill into a tomb. That's what Jesus offers to us. I don't know how many of you have ever seen, I sometimes recommend books, um, rarely recommend movies, but I'm going to recommend one to you. Many of you have probably already seen it called The Mission. If you've never seen the movie The Mission, or it's been years since you've seen it, you need to go back and see it again. It's starring Jeremy Irons and um, Jeremy, uh, Robert De Niro. Great movie. But it's the story, and it's a true story, incidentally, about a group of uh, priests down in South America ministering to the Indians in the 18th century. And the story goes that this one man had been a slave trader, capturing these slaves, these Indians, and selling them to the Spanish and to the Portuguese. And um, in a fit of rage, he kills his brother, his own brother. And he'd been a slave trader, he'd been notorious, he'd killed his brother. He felt terrible about it, and when he killed his brother, really guilt just overwhelmed him. And he decided that the best way to atone for his guilt was to become a priest and minister to the very people that he had captured and sold into slavery. But the Indian village was high above this huge waterfall. And so as a sign of his penance in the 18th century, he carries this sack of armor and swords, the tools of his trade as a slave trader. And he climbs up this mountainside with this huge burden on him. And on several occasions, he falls and he slips and he almost dies on several occasions. When he finally gets to the top, he is completely exhausted. And many of the priests try to cut it free, but he wouldn't let them. He wouldn't let them. He wanted to carry that burden with him because it was his to carry and his alone. But when he gets to the top of that waterfall... One of the Indians comes out of the brush and takes a knife, holds him by the hair, pulls his neck back, and he thinks he's going to cut his neck, and that's what he deserves. And instead, what the Indian does is he cuts the cord and sends that burden falling over that great waterfall, and he is free. And the next thing you see is Robert De Niro, that's the man who plays the character, 
weeping uncontrollably. Why? Because he'd been set free. That's what Jesus Christ wants to offer us. He wants to set us free from our burden. And then he offers another part of the invitation. He says, now, having been set free from the burden, come to me. Come and learn from me. Learn about my life of serenity. Learn about my life of peace. Learn about what it is to live a full life. It's an invitation to matriculate in the school of Jesus Christ, (laughs) where he is both the subject and the teacher. He says, come if you're weary, and I'll give you a rest. You ever weary? I'll tell you, if there's one thing that will wear you out in life, it is wearing a mask. It's pretending to be something you are not. It is pretending to be upstanding when you know you're not. It's pretending to be righteous and holy when you know deep down inside you're not. Jesus said the problem is not with the world. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man. And Jesus says if that's you today, there's a way to escape the judgment that is to come. Don't be willful in your unbelief. Come to me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Folks, that's the greatest message in the world. If you've never done it, today's the day. Don't put it off until tomorrow. Don't put it off until you understand everything. Don't put it off until all of your questions are answered, because if you put it off, it may never happen. There's a great hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. It goes like this, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy, Weak and Wounded, Sick and Sore, Jesus Ready Stands to Save You, Full of Pity, Love and Power. Come Ye Thirsty, Come and Welcome, God's Free Bounty Glorify, True Belief and True Repentance, Every Grace that Brings You Nigh. Next two are so wonderful. Come Ye Weary, Heavy Laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to fill your need of him. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, grant that we may feel our need of you. Help us to take off the mask and see ourselves for what we really are, to admit it, to know that oftentimes we are like the crowds, willful in our unbelief, but crack through that hard-heartedness. Help us to admit our sin and come to you that we may find rest for our weary souls. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.